we're in a series called Shoe Leather Wisdom, and um, we're in James chapter 4. So James chapter 3, while you're turning there, go ahead, grab your Bible or your phone or whatever you use. Uh, James chapter 3 covered worldliness of the tongue and how the tongue has to be submitted uh, to the Holy Spirit or it will do all kinds of damage. James calls it a very fire. And in James chapter 4 now, we're centering around worldliness of the heart. How outwardly we can posture well, but inwardly we can be just as worldly as if uh, we were not sitting in church, right? And so James' instructions basically have to do with, uh, in this chapter, envy, coveting, quarreling, fighting, and being contentious in the church. That's quite a batch together. And he's just simply saying, don't do this. Don't, don't live. This is not the Christian life. And, uh, and by the way, last week at the family meal, if you, if you weren't able to be here, we, we just had a great time celebrating uh, 10 years in the building. And uh, Jan, Pastor Jan was here, and he gave us a great compliment of, as a church. He was talking and talked about the fact that we belong to Converge Northwest and belong to several church networks that we're all a part of. And his question to us was, do you know what Northview is known for? He says, outside, outside these walls, uh, in, the, in the community, out in the area, do you know what our reputation for uh, is? And his answer is that we're known as a relationally healthy church. That other churches, other pastors in the area look at this and go, you know, that's kind of what we want to become. I went, wow, that's pretty powerful. And then he said, we're also a church that produces kingdom-minded young people and uh, that they uh, don't just go off and drop they go off and do things for the Lord and and so I thought man that's a pretty pretty high compliment and uh, I I thought that was uh, a great honor that he brought our way but I I think that's one of those things you have to be proactive and vigilant on right because it can slip from you pretty quickly so uh, James chapter 4 then it kind of walks into this what to do and, and what not to do so this being Father's Day, dads, my, my hope is that this message will be an encouragement to those of you who are dads and those of you who aren't dads as well. So let's chew on our jerky and chew on the word together and we'll have some fun, all right? And uh, if you chew on your jerky, I'm not offended in the least. There we go. Uh, so we ended last week with verse 5. And uh, let's bring it up there. It says, Or do you suppose that it is no purpose... That's the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. So just a little bit in review. We said last week that when God gives us the deposit of the Holy Spirit, it's, it's a very precious treasure that he gives us. And he pours that into our lives. That when he does this, he gives us his best stuff. He gives us of himself. And often I don't think we stop long enough to really contemplate that. Just as he longed to be reunited with his son, so he now longs to be reunited with his spirit that he's poured into us. And this is a really profound mystery here. As we talked about being proactive in our relationship with Christ and the, and the body, I believe the whole context that James is addressing are people who have been given this gift, the gift of salvation and relationship with the Holy Spirit, but then through life and circumstances and pressure They've drifted and now they're more tied to the world than they are to Christ. Right? And that can happen in the life of a church. That can happen in the life of an individual. That can happen in a marriage. That can happen in a family. There can be seasons. Right? You're drifting towards the Lord and then you're drifting away. And, um, and James is, is addressing this. And, and 
he calls it out pretty starkly. And he says, simply, friendship with the world is enmity with God or strife with God. And therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The world, the cosmos, we've looked at this earlier uh, in, in the series, is, a syst- is the system of this planet that's opposed to God's rule and his reign. And it fights that battle both within and without with us. And so we get attacked from several different ways. And the added problem is that God's holy standards are impossible to meet. You ever run into that? Like it doesn't, you can't make it? So the expositor's Bible commentary points out that God has set a high standard for wholehearted love and devotion of his people, but he gives grace that's greater than the rigorous demands that he has made. We can't live what we know to be right without his help. And thus we come to one of the greatest statements that can be found in all of the Bible, and it's this statement. But he gives us more grace. When we hit that wall, when we've come to the end, when we realize we can't make it, what the Word says is that he gives us more grace. Uh, And this leads us to our passage for this morning that starts with this idea. Let's read it together. We'll only get through half of this this morning. We'll cover the other half. Next week, but he says this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I want to lock into that phrase this morning, but he gives us more grace. I think we need to hear that. Do we need more grace? Certainly we do, right? Dads, on Father's Day, do we need more grace to be the man, the father, that God wants us to be? Yes, thank you. Yes, we do. All right, well, let's pray for that grace this morning, all right? Father, we know that your grace is a precious commodity and it's not given out or just thrown willy-nilly. It uh, comes to those who seek you and it comes for those who ask. And we're, we would ask this morning, on Father's Day, you're the ultimate father. You've been a great, great dad to us. You have been faithful. You've been steadfast. You've been patient. You've been kind. You've been solid. And, and you have really uh, changed us. You've found us. And, and we are much better for being adopted by you. And as we walk through this passage, Lord, we're walking through some principles here of of a group that drifted. And help us not to drift. We seek you for that. Ask for your favor in that, especially on this day, Father's Day. And ask this in your name. Amen. All right. So the idea here is, what James is saying, is that we can live godly lives. It is possible. We can follow the Lord. We can be Uh, submitted to him and we can uh, do the things that he's asked us to do and one of the core uh, parts of this is that he gives us more grace Uh, I I think in my life as I look there's different seasons that I saw God doing a different work and he was doing something in me to change and refine different parts and uh, it's never always been the same but it's always been the same impetus to just draw me closer to him and make me more submitted. And therefore, 
The idea behind this grace is, is a key one. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Um, I, before we go on to that, I just want to build into this idea of grace because I think sometimes we just slide past it too much. Um, he gives us more grace. In uh, John, what you find is that grace is just built into the description of Jesus. Right? Uh, it says this in the word, this is in John 1, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And in other places, I'm not even unworthy to untie a sandal. For from the fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Amen? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Right? So the Bible says we don't even really have the ability to grasp a picture of God if it hadn't been for what Jesus said to us and what Jesus modeled for us. That's the only way we actually get the picture. Romans 5 says this, Therefore, since we've been justified justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access. There's a key word, access, right? Uh, by the way, honey, I need my your keys this morning because I locked my keys in the Suburban and I no longer have access to the Suburban, <laughs> right? You ever felt like that in your faith? We need access, right? Jesus provides us that access by faith into this grace which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That access produces joy. It produces uh, gratefulness. Grace leads us to true freedom and godly living. It, it takes it from all these have-tos to I get to. I get to because he loved me and I get to love him back. And it turns into this. It turns into an expression of grace. So if that's so, how do we obtain this grace? God in grace gives his people the help they need to resist the appeal of the world and remain loyal to him. I was wrestling with this message like, where does this go? And, and really, if you think about it, it's the issue of grace being given that we can resist the appeal of the world and stay loyal to him. Are there any things in your life that te- try to woo you, tempt you, lure you away from God onto some other pursuit? In our culture, all kinds of them. Matter of fact, almost everything, right? There's very few things that actually push you towards being loyal towards God. And the ability of of that grace to be received is contingent upon the state of the heart. And that's why James ties these two two things together here. He gives uh, more grace, and therefore it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I want to suggest this morning, uh, and we've we've taught this before, that um, this is the universal principle, right? That God gives uh, grace, and God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you remember, we studied the book of 1 Peter. Peter also says this, and we'll come back to Peter just to flip back on it. But, uh, this is actually a takeoff from Proverbs 3.34, and it words just a little bit differently. If you're wondering where that comes from out of the Old Testament, it says, Towards the scorners he's scornful, but to the humble he gives favor or grace. And the idea here is 
to the cynical and to the scornful and to the mockers and that kind of stuff. Uh, he is scornful. He, he responds equally back to them. But to the humble, he gives favor. And so it really matters how we come to God. If we come to God in pride, if we approach in pride, then we're not going to receive much. If we come humbly, then we'll receive a lot. Second uh, Samuel, David really pegs this well. He says this, To the faithful you show yourself faithful. To the blameless you show yourself blameless. And to the pure you show yourself pure. But to the devious you show yourself shrewd. In uh, another translation, you say to the cunning. Right? You ever run into a cunning person? call him a manipulator, but to the devious you sell yourself food. You save the humble, but your eyes on the haughty to bring them low. The idea is, this morning, it's not before each other's eyes that uh, we are present, but it's before the eyes of God. And God knows those who are acting in pride, and God knows those who are acting in humility. And to those who are acting in pride, it says he, he brings them low. And to those who are humble, he lifts up or gives favor. First Peter says it this way. We'll come back to that since we mentioned them. Let me get there. There we go. It says, clothe yourselves. Just like we put on clothes this morning, there's attributes that we should put on. And Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter and James both take that same phrase and make it a core part of their epistle, and you go, why? Well, because the people they were dealing with were prideful, right? Duh. And and they were trying to get their attention to say, you know, you used to be humble, you used to be walking, you used to be devoted, you used to be tied in, and you used to be surrendered. You're not anymore. You've drifted. And they're kind of both Peter and James are going, hey, wake up! Can't you see that you've drifted? The Expositor's Bible Commentary says, The humble are the people who willingly submit to God's desire for them rather than proudly insisting on satisfying their own desires for pleasure. So ultimately, pride revolves around this idea of my needs getting met and how I meet them. How do I get my needs met? Do I take it into my hands and say, I will fulfill and go after those things that are, are my desires that I want fulfilled? Or can I hit the pause button? Can I check with God and say, is that of you? Do I need to have that? Or do I just want that? You know, needs and wants it really depends on who defines it, right? You ever have your children say, I need that? No, you want that, right? But are we as adults any better? No. Right? I need to have that car. I need to have that house. I need to have that permanent. I need to have, right? We, we need, but a lot of times what we're really saying is, I want. And I think this statement is really, the humble are the people who willingly submit to God's <coughs> desire for them, rather than proudly insisting on satisfying their own desires for pleasure. Margaret has a, a great little sign hanging on her desk that, kind of highlights this idea. It says, remember, your reward is not down here. Really, and if you think about it, that's pretty critical. Why? 
Because sometimes we get impatient and sometimes we get tired of waiting and sometimes we say to God, enough, I'm done. I'm glad you're patient and you can be patient for 500,000 years. I'm just a person. I'm going to live for about 20 more and I want to get this in the next 20 years. So if you ain't going to get off the dime and do something, then I'm going to do it because I want it. Anybody ever said that before? Okay, right? And, and so we get caught with that because why? We want our reward to be here and in heaven. You know, God bless both. You got a lot. I mean, roll it out, right? I could win the lottery. You know what I could do for your kingdom if you let me win the lottery? How many times do you think God's heard that prayer? There they go again, right? And so I, I admit it's a struggle. I admit that it's a pull. And it, that's something we always have to keep coming back to. Uh, John says it this way. He says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And and John's capturing something here is that it's just so easy to let the world capture us and the things of the world capture us rather than God. And the question is not, do they both exist? The question is priority. Which is first? Is my love of God first and then this all falls in line? Or do I love all this stuff and I want God to fall in line? Right? You ever want, tried to make God line up with your priorities? You know what? Here's how it should work if you really had a clue. Now, you know, you would have never said that because you know God would have hit you with lightning. And, you know, but we've thought that, right? Romans 1 reminds us that we have a tendency, as, as humans, we tend to be idol-making factories And we have a tendency to worship the creation instead of the Creator. That our hearts are way too easily bent towards idolatry. And so the issue becomes, what do I give my heart to? Who gets first place? God or something else? Right? And remember we we walked through uh, last week or two weeks ago just the kind of priority list. What, What gets my time? What gets my pocketbook? And what gets my enthusiasm? And you can kind of roll that out that way and look at that and kind of go, you know, am I really setting things in front of God or am I really setting God first? That's the issue of a daily quiet time. What's really behind that? Stopping, consciously putting God first again. This is your day. This is your world. This is your stuff. I'm yours. How do you want this day to roll out? I want to be... Your servant, I want to keep that in sight. One of the questions is, if you can go through, you go, well, how would I know if I'm drifting? How do I know if idolatry is a problem? If you can go through a whole day or a whole week and God never comes to your conscious thought till you come to church, you've got a problem. It should be a relationship where he's thinking of you all the time and you're thinking of him all the time. And so they come at these things hard. And what's the issue here? Really, the issue is that wonderful age-old issue of submission. Yay! Right? 
The crowds applaud. They flood. Yes, submission. Oh, man, again. What does James say? Out of this, all of this, he's calling back to what? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Come back to surrender. You know, really, if you think about it, submission is an authority issue. It's an issue over control. It's an issue over who's the boss. And that's really what we fight with, no matter how we look on the outside. That's what we're really struggling with. What I give myself to, here's a key principle. If you've never heard this, I know you've heard it from me before, but if you're newer visiting, whatever I give myself to in the end ends up controlling me. And so another way you could put like what the Bible's saying here, what James is saying, be very careful what you give yourself to. Because whatever you start out controlling in the end will end up controlling you. And if you're over 40, you know that's true. James is echoing this same thing. Uh, submission, you know, if you, if you look at James's life, submission was a radical thing for him too, right? We, we can forget this. Uh, it can completely drop off the landscape, but he had to submit, come under the authority of his brother Jesus. How much fun do you think that was for him? Hoo-hoo, yeah, the crackpot. I got to submit to him. Oh, man. Remember what they called Jesus? They, they mocked him. So for James, this was radical, and it's radical for us. It's not, it wasn't an easy thing for him to do, and it isn't an easy thing for us to do. In submission, <clears throat> I literally come under the authority of Jesus. I was talking with Ben, ben Lamb this week, and by the way, later, we're, uh, Ben's going to get baptized this summer, and, uh, and we're gonna, he's going to have an invite out to the church, and we're going to do it outdoors, and yeah, we'll put it in the e-news and that kind of stuff. But he's, he's signed up for service. He's, he's going into the army. And he says, yeah, it's a little different once you've signed that line. He says, because once I signed on that line, it really doesn't matter what I feel. They really don't care. He says, now it's about commitment and what I promised. And, and, he, and, and I said, and I was talking to him about this message. He goes, oh yeah, I get that. Completely differently than I did two weeks ago. Right? Some of you probably had that when you got married. Like going through your marriage and going, man, these are really serious words. Yikes. Do I really want to say that? And then it probably happened again when you became parents and realized that's not going to be a one-day experiment. (laughs) That's a whole plan of submission, right? And so we're not, it's not like we don't understand it. We do understand it. But I thought it'd be fun to get a, a picture this morning um, of what that could look like. Uh, because in this, Jesus becomes my leader and my king. And to do that, I must humble myself. I must agree he's God. It's really pretty simple. He's God, I'm not. So he's the boss I need to come under. That, I, I found that a very difficult, very easy concept to get intellectually, very difficult concept to respond to with, with my will. Um, but I must transfer control from the kingdom of me to the kingdom of Jesus. Uh, my commentary points out that submission is different from obedience. I thought this was good. Submission is different than obedience. Submission is the surrender of one's will, which leads to obedience. In other words, if I'm trying to be obedient, but I'm still resisting Jesus' authority, it's very hard to pull that off. You ever tried that? Yes. No? Right? Ever said that? No, Lord. 
It's, it's a crazy concept, but uh, yes, you're the boss, but no, I'm not going to do that. Right? We wrestle with that, with that battle. So I, basically what James is saying is you've got to stop trying to be God and let Jesus be God. He's, he's much better at it. Uh, Peter emphasizes what James says here. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. That, so at the proper time, in NIV it says due time. Notice that proper time or due time is not our time. I always notice that. That he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And here's one of the things. If you think about the level of anxiety we carry around as a culture, man, we are off the charts. Okay? We freak out about everything. And the issue is we bring a lot, we carry a lot of anxiety we don't have to carry. And the reason we do is because we don't want to come under. Right? Because we know if we come under, we have to give up the gig. And so I'd rather carry the anxiety than come under the authority. And so I'll take sleep things and other things and stuff things because I'm trying to deal with the anxiety that is inside of me. And Peter's saying here that we are to cast all our anxiety on him because he cares for you. I asked a person one time there in my office just, I mean, freaked out would be a good way to put it. And I said, how, how much of your anxiety are you to give to him? Like 66.2% or 73.4% or 85.6%? And really, their deal was they had just one big thing. The rest of it they were totally complying to, but there was this one thing that they were wrestling with, they were mad about, and they wouldn't give it to God and they wouldn't come under God with it because they knew what the answer was. And they didn't want to do it. And so they were just doused in anxiety. And I said, well, have you thought about the fact that it's an authority problem? And, well, what do you mean authority problem? Well, you won't come under the authority of Jesus, therefore you can't give it to him, so you have to carry it. I said, how's that backpack feeling to you? Oh, it's killing me. Well, why don't you come? No. But, yeah, it would, no. Right? I said, so in other words, you, you say you're going to carry that backpack till you grind yourself right into the ground. Yeah. Okay. Just at least know you're carrying the backpack. And they walked out that way. Right? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties because He cares for you. I thought a, a, a personality study would be good here. So here's uh, King Saul and King David. Two kings. Both kings, both had the same role. Both had the same station at life, not at the same time. Obviously, Saul preceded David. But if you're asking, what does this look like in real life? Uh, Saul and David had often been used to contrast the difference between the heart set on the world and the heart submitted to God. Uh, Dads, for us this morning, uh, Floyd McClung in his book, The Father Heart of God, looks at Saul's life and he notes that power can come from position, But more often, authority comes from character, obedience, and God's anointing. And that's the difference between Saul and David. Uh, He has a thing in his book, The Father Heart of God, that he calls uh, the Saul Syndrome. And he says that a closer study of the life of Saul reveals a pattern, a terrible, unmistakable cycle of inferiority and emotional hurt, uh, what he calls the Saul Syndrome. 1 Samuel 15 lists the characteristics of Saul's personality. He says, stubbornness and independent, 
Rebellion as the sin of divination and stubbornness as the iniquity and idolatry. Pride. Saul came to Carmel and said, Behold, he set up a monument for himself. You ever set up a monument for yourself? Let others know how great you are. Fear of man. He said, I sinned because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And then disobedience. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. So Saul had these places that were Achilles' heels, we would call them. And the Saul syndrome looks like this. Starts out with inferiority. And most of that comes from we know we're wrong. The Bible says that the the law of God is written on our hearts so that if we sin, not compared to anyone else, not compared to the person sitting next to you, not compared to your parents, not compared to your brothers or sisters, not compared to the people you work with, but just when you look, you know you've done something wrong. It sets in, when we know we've sinned, it sets in a cycle of inferiority. And once inferiority kicks in, then independence. Well, I don't want to be judged. So I'm going to step out, right? I'll, I'll, be, I'll set my own rules. And once we get independent, then we get full of pride. And once we get prideful, then we get fearful of what other people are going to think and what they're going to say and what they're going to do. And once that happens, then we get disobedient. And once we're disobedient, guess what? We're inferior again. You ever run around that squirrel cage? Right? Chasing your own tail? Faster and faster? And you can come from different points. For example, if you start with disobedience, it goes into inferiority, goes into independence, goes into pride, goes into the fear of men. Start with fear of men. It doesn't matter which point you start in. What matters is that once you get started, it's a pretty hard cycle to get out of. Right? And that pride is the source or the fuel or the energy that runs that. Some indicators of, of Saul. Here's some indicators, and these are taken... Uh, from Floyd, I think he does it well. Withdrawal or isolation. You ever notice when you want to sin, you've got to get alone? Even if it's in your thoughts? You've got to create a space. You've got to create some kind of gap so that others can't see and you can't get caught. Uh, secondly, possessiveness. Mine. Mine. Right? What's behind that pride? Mine. Right? Uh, a humble person would say, His. But we say mine. Uh, us versus them mentality. They're always against me. I, I mean, this uh, in my office, if I had a tape for every time somebody said, they're against me, uh, I'd be a very rich man, you know. Manipulation. Right? When you're in pride, when you're running your own, you've got to manipulate the people and the circumstances so you can get to where you want to get instead of trusting the Lord to get you there. Uh, one of the traits of Saul is unteachableness. The Lord warned him several times. Samuel came and talked to him several times. Saul knew. He knew what he was supposed to do. He just wouldn't do it. Right? And likewise, I think that's a, a, for us, that's okay. That's a bad way to operate. If we know what the right thing is to do and we just simply won't do it, that's a stubborn, rebellious heart and it's going to mess us up. Critical and judgmental attitude, right? If you know you're going to be judged, what do you do with other people? You judge and critique them too. Kind of goes full circle. This one, anybody ever wrestle with this one? Matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 13, it says what? Love is patient. Why did God put it at the front of the list? What are we not? 
By the way, where is that? Where are those verses, 1 Corinthians? Where is that usually used? Weddings. I think that's hilarious. They have no idea what they're saying. I will be patient. Boy, will you learn patience? Yes, we will. Right? Another issue comes out, distrust. Uh, if, if you are running in this cycle, you're very distrustful of other people. Because why? You know you're running an agenda, so everybody else may be too. It's, it's uh, a known fact that if somebody's cheating in their marriage, they become very jealous and possessive of their spouse and start accusing them of having an affair. Why? Because they suspect them of being guilty of the very same thing they're doing. We can get pretty nasty with this stuff. And then the last one that he lists is disloyalty. Right? Now, I'm not saying we're this list. I'm saying this is the list we don't want to be. Right? Do not be this list, James, James is saying. Don't act like this. Uh, if There's a, two other ones here. Almost always when you get this far, ingratitude, right? A lack of gratefulness goes out the window. And then unhealthy idealism. I'm the only one who sees it right. And I'll die for my ideals because the ideals are more important than the people around me. Right? You ever seen somebody do that? So then how do you become like King David? Here's what we want to be like. Well, instead of withdrawal or isolation, one of the things that we want to practice is leaning in towards God. Right? When a crisis happens, when life happens, there's two ways you can lean. You can either lean towards God or away from God. Right? You either push away or you draw in closer. And it's amazing to me. I have watched people now for 40 years get hit with stuff and get a lot of times the same thing. I'll watch two people hit the same crisis. One will come to my office and they are leaning into God. I know this is from God. All this hurts. I've got to, I've got to just give in and surrender to him. And I know he'll work, see me through it. But, and then another person, it blows them up and they go, if that's the way God treats his children, I'm out of here. And they walk. And one of the things we've got to learn to do, by the way, have you noticed life is tough? Have you noticed life is hard? Have you noticed there's nothing that says in Scripture, because you're a Christian, you get a cakewalk. It's all free. You get, everything will go your way. No. No, a lot of things don't go our way. And a lot of stuff is really, really hard. And guess what? It's going to be. It might get harder. And when the hard stuff hits, that's when you lean in. That's when you lean towards. Secondly, instead of possessiveness, we learn to be stewards. It's not my stuff. It's God's stuff. I'm a steward for a period of time. And I'm to be a good steward with it. Instead of a us versus them, it's a we mentality. One of the ways you can catch this is in your conversations. How often do you say I? I want, I, instead of, well, we, right? Or as a family, or as a church, we will do this together. We language uh, really shows something. Uh, we have a, instead of a manipulation attitude, we have a serve attitude. Pitching in. Uh, instead of uh, unteachableness, we have a willingness to repent. We're going to talk about repentance next week. Instead of um, critical judgment, uh, we have a forgiving attitude. By the way, uh, just 
rabbit trail. Um, just if I forgive somebody, it doesn't mean I have to trust them. Know the difference. I can fully forgive them. It does not mean that I have to trust them. Trust has to be earned. Forgiveness doesn't. And so that's why the Bible says, forgive as God has forgiven you. And sometimes you say, oh, I don't feel forgiven because my relationship with Jesus isn't the way it used to be. Of course not, because trust has to be re-earned. Right? It's a relationship. But forgiveness can be fully extended. Instead of impatient, obviously, obvious, I learned to be patient. Instead of distrust, I become trusting. Uh, it's, if you're not working agenda, you don't suspect other people are either. You take it at, at face value. Sometimes you have to be wise with that, right? Instead of uh, disloyalty, I become loyal to God. I become loyal to what He's asking of me. I can become loyal to His Word. I become loyal to His people. I become loyal to His kingdom. Instead of ungrateful, I become grateful. Right? One of the things, take gratefulness out of a group of people and it'll dry up really quick. One of the signs of a healthy church is a grateful church, a generous church, which we are. And I celebrate you on that. It's a great church to pastor that way. And we do this well. But gratefulness is important. And then uh, instead of uh, contention and uh, unhealthy idealism, we have unity, right? A lack of contention. Lack of contention doesn't mean we all think the same way or we all agree, but just means we agree to think it through together. We're not going to take after each other. So James says this then, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So let's wrap this part up this week and then we'll come back next week with the repentance sides that James goes into. James is calling here, the people he's writing to, obviously he's calling for an immediate response. He didn't write this epistle and say, hey, why don't you think about it for a couple weeks and get back to me? He's telling them, turn, turn, turn. People, what happened to you? And so we can take a cue from that and go, you know, quick turns are good. Quick turns towards God make a big difference. Why? Because James is highlighting something here that's really important. You can't resist the devil if you don't submit to God first. You ever tried to do that? You ever tried to get rid of sin in your life without submitting to God? That is a miserable process. I'll pull up my bootstraps, watch me. Yeah, that's, that's doomed for failure. The idea here is if you've got stuff and you've got warfare and you've got pressure, that stuff, you can't contend with that stuff till first you recognize and go, bing, hey, light bulb comes on. I should come under God's authority first. Once I come under his authority, then I can come back and I can resist the devil. Then I can start praying. Then I, Why? Because I got the armor on. I got protection. Now I can actually pray against that because I know... God's got my back. And then scripture says, when you do it that way, then and you resist them, then he will flee from you. Why? Because Satan can see the unseen things. We can't. He knows those who are walking in the armor of God. He knows who aren't. He knows those who are submitted and those who aren't. Remember the seven sons of Shiva who watched what Paul and them were doing and said, hey, pretty cool. And they saw this demon-possessed guy and they said, we, in the name of Jesus, cast you out. And the guy says, well, 
Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And it says they beat the snot out of them to the point that they were almost dead and they had to crawl out of there and they were all bloodied up. We are not a match for Satan unless we're under the authority of Jesus. Then we're a, a total match for him. And then it says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Here's a vital principle. You can talk sovereignty and all these things like this, but the Bible always says, you know what? If you draw near to God, He will draw near to you. That's His heart. If you come in humbleness, you come in humility, you recognize the gap needs to be closed, and you move towards Him, the Bible says He will always move towards you. And He's talking to people that had drifted away, right? There was a gap. They knew the gap. James knew the gap. And so He was saying, He's calling them back. So first you submit, then you resist, then the devil will flee from you. And um, we need to keep that order right. You know, dads, I think in our families, often we feel powerless. The people around us wouldn't know that, right? Because we buff up and do all this stuff and, you know, and booyah, and we're tough. And so we're bulletproof and invincible and nobody would know we're pretty fragile. But the truth is, most of the time, we don't really think we have too much power. And we watch things going on in our family just kind of freaking out. I don't know what to do. Well, here's what you do. You draw close to God. Come under His authority because our strength and our authority lie in being under God's authority. To the degree that I will come under Jesus' authority is to the degree then that I will have strength and authority. Uh, We'll explore this a little further next week, but here's an exercise for this week. As a bridge between today and next Sunday, question out of what James is talking about, what do you need to walk away from this morning? As we've been talking, I imagine there's several points of conviction that have come up. If I were to sit down and just have coffee with you and I were to say to you, what do you need to walk away from? What's kind of an idol in your life? What, what, what's been pulling you away and you know it's been pulling you away and you haven't wanted to admit it and you're drifting but you haven't wanted to admit it you've drifted as far as you have? What would that be? And then the second question would be the exact opposite of that. What do you need to draw close to? Right? What do you, where, you know you've drifted. What do you got to get back to? Right? God has signature imprints on our lives and things that are special in our relationship with Him make it really work. Right? What, what do you got to get back to? So for this week, what do you need to walk away from? And what do you need to draw close to? I'm going to ask John and the worship team to come up. And I want to just give us a second to ponder that. Have, have you drifted? Have you drifted? From that first love. And if you have, what do you need to do to get back? What's pulling you away? Can you identify it? What's causing the drift? It might just be an attitude in your heart or mind that you've been playing with that you know isn't from the Lord and you know you aren't supposed to play with it. Are you, when it, pulling back, are you willing to come back under? Are you willing to come back under? Could you tell Jesus that this morning? Let's pray. Father, this is our interaction time. This is where you minister. This is where you, by your Spirit, can see inside our hearts and you can see inside our mind and and you can read our thoughts. Nothing is hidden before your eyes, Lord. And so this morning, this is the interactive time. 
that you can actually have a one-on-one with all of us. And I'm presenting us to you for that. You're a great dad. You're a good dad. You've been a marvelous dad to all of us in this room. We get bent. We get hooked. We get our attitudes, as we'd say, bent out of shape. Sometimes we're mad at you. Sometimes we're disappointed with you because you don't operate the way we do or the way we want you to. But when we really come back to it, you are really good. And the people who are the most blessed in our culture right now, Lord, are people who are sitting this morning in a room like this because they came to honor you and they came to listen. They came to look at their stuff and figure out how to be a better son or a better daughter. Lord, I just want to pray for dads today. We're not bulletproof. We're not invincible. We're only strong if we're strong in you. I ask for your help in that. Give us an abounding grace in our role as dads. Give us abounding grace in this culture and help us be strong in you. And we seek you for that in your name. Amen.